Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. This is, of course, the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast, and that means that I am once again sitting down with Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School. Art is the chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. On this episode, we have a lot to cover. Uh, We haven't spoken in nearly two months. We have, to begin with, the Supreme Court October term to discuss. There are many cert petitions already lined up. There are a number of issues percolating through the lower courts. Art is going to help us understand all of the recent activity. Then we'll be talking about the repeated victories that we saw in the access to appropriate bathrooms and locker rooms, Uh, litigation for transgender students under Title IX. There were some great cases decided over the summer in that context. And finally, we will talk about a huge victory in the Seventh Circuit for an LGBT senior facing severe violence, discrimination, and harassment in a senior center. Let's dig in. All right. It has been two months, but we're finally back here sitting down in Art Leonard's offices here at New York Law School. Art, how have you been? Oh, it has been such a busy (laughs) summer. And uh, just to warn uh, those who are listening to this podcast before they receive their copy of the September issue of Law Notes, you're going to be blown away. (laughs) This is the longest issue we've ever had. It's just jam-packed with all kinds of legal developments from the summer. And uh, there was so much accumulated material at the end of August that it took me an additional week and a half into September just to finish it. And in the meantime, the Supreme Court of India struck down the sodomy law. And, and I thought, no, that's for October. That's for October. <laughs> Tell us how long that opinion was, Art. That, well, the PDF file released by the court is 495 pages, four opinions issued by five judges. One judge signed on to the, Supreme, uh, the Chief Justice's opinion. But four opinions, all of them long opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of our contributing writers has valiantly agreed to take it on for the October issue of Law Notes. And so we'll be discussing that next month. Very exciting. So I think what we'll do is kick off our conversation with uh, the Supreme Court. Um, Surely everybody is thinking about the Supreme Court already, not just because the October term is looming, but because we are in the middle of confirmation hearings. Well, we just wrapped up confirmation hearings, but a vote on Judge Kavanaugh. So um, we're not going to be talking about Judge Kavanaugh, except to the extent that it may, what happens may influence or impact some of these pending cert petitions, but we have a whole host of really interesting cert petitions on LGBT-related cases that we're going to talk about, including Title VII, Title IX, judicial misconduct, transmilitary ban, post-masterpiece cake shop, benefits for same-sex couples. Art, there's a lot going on. Well, some of those are likely cert petitions because they're <laughs> cases true. that are cases that, that are developing and they're at, they're at the stage where they're going to end up possibly yes. with cert petitions. All right. Well, All right. Let's, so get, let's, let's, let's get to the merits right, because so, we've got a lot to talk right. about. Let's start and with this the title. And this is the big thing. Do we want to tar- start with Title Seven? Uh, yeah, because that's that's where we do have the cert petitions, uh, three of them pending. Okay. Uh, and two of them will probably be discussed by the court during the so-called long conference, which is the last week in September. They hold the conference that lasts all week going through all the cert petitions that have piled up 
over the summer, mm-hmm. and actually the last few weeks of the prior term, too, because a cert petition is filed, and then the uh, respondent has a right to file a reply. And so they have several weeks to file their reply. And then the petitioner has a right to file a response to the reply. And until that file is complete, it's not sent and distributed to the chambers of the justices and scheduled for conference. So there are cert petitions that were filed in uh, in June and July that they haven't talked about yet because the files weren't complete. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we've got two uh, Title VII cases that are on the schedule for the long conference. Uh, the docket of the court specifically says distributed for conference of September 24. Okay. That'll run through the last week. And then at the end of the week, sometimes on Friday they announce the results. Sometimes they wait until Monday, which is the first Monday in October when the term officially starts. So the ones that are on the uh, list for the long conference are Bostock versus Clayton County Board of Commissioners, uh, a decision from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which, based on a 1979 ruling by the old Fifth Circuit yeah. before they divided it. So old. old Fifth Circuit precedents remain binding in the Eleventh Circuit unless uh, they've been reversed by an on bank court. So uh, the Eleventh Circuit uh, rejected Gerald Bostock's Title VII sexual orientation claim uh, on the grounds of this old case, Blum versus Gulf Oil Corporation, uh, which was by the way, recently reaffirmed by another panel of the circuit, the Evans versus Georgia Regional Hospital case, which was a Lambda legal case. And uh, Lambda had filed a cert petition in that case, which was turned down by the Supreme Court, I believe, in December 2017. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was a time uh, when uh, I would think it would be difficult to get four members of the court at that time to say that this is an issue they should take up when the lower court rejected the claim. Mm. Because, uh, you know, the the four Democratic appointees on the court, the more liberal ones on the court, might say, well, we can't count on it being reversed. And so maybe it's better to contain that to the 11th Circuit because we've got these cases going in other circuits that are going the other way. So let that one lie. Uh, The attorney for Bostock... They were hedging their bets. They filed a petition for on-bank review, and they filed a cert petition. You can do both simultaneously. And uh, while the cert petition is pending, the uh, circuit denied on-bank review on July 18th by a vote of 9 to 2. And there was a dissent for the denial of cert by uh, Judge Robin Rosenbaum, who was joined by Judge Joe Pryor. And Rosenbaum really ripped into the circuit for turning this down. She said, this is indisputably an on-bank worthy case. Uh, she said, within the last 15 months, two of our sister circuits have found the issue of such extraordinary importance that they've each addressed it on-bank. The Zarda case in the Second Circuit, the Hively case in the Seventh Circuit. In both cases, they ended up reversing circuit precedent and saying sexual orientation claims are actionable under Title VII, mm-hmm. uh, sex discrimination claims. And, and she says, no wonder... No wonder these two circuits went on bank. In 2011, about 8 million Americans identified as lesbian, gay, or bisexual, citing a demographic study from the Williams Institute. And she says, of those who so identify, roughly 25% report experiencing workplace discrimination because of their sexual preferences do not match their employer's expectations. 
that's a whole lot of people potentially affected by this issue, she says. And furthermore, and this is like my favorite line, uh, she said, relying on the Blum decision, uh-huh. she said, the Blum decision was one sentence. Discharge for homosexuality is not prohibited by Title VII. No analysis, no further discussion, and they cite as their authority a case called Smith versus Liberty Mutual Insurance Company, an earlier Fifth Circuit decision. 1978. For 78, that turned down a discrimination claim under Title VII from a transgender plaintiff. Oh. Which, you know, how is that precedent for a, a sexual orientation case? Right. But, you know, that, that was a time when most courts were ignorant of the difference, and they just lumped them all together. And she said, and that case... That case was basically overruled by the circuit, Smith, in Glenn v. Brumby, mm-hmm. where they said that gender identity discrimination is sex discrimination, at least there and for purposes of the 14th Amendment. So it is, in effect, no longer a valid precedent. She said, relying on that, she said, uh, uh, I cannot explain why a majority of our court is content to rely on the precedential equivalent of an Edsel with a missing engine. Wow. Now there's a zinger. <laughs> When it comes to an issue that affects so many people, she said, as a court, uh, at least subject it to the crucial crucible of adversarial testing. You know, let's have a hearing. Let's hear the arguments. Let's wow. consider this afresh. Surely the Glenn v. Brumby case dealt with or addressed the Smith precedent, didn't it? Uh, I don't know if it expressly overruled it, but it certainly implicitly overruled yeah. it. Because Smith was a Title VII case and Brumby was a, uh equal protection case. Okay. I think it was primarily a 14th Amendment case. So that petition is pending in the Supreme Court. Uh, and then we have, from the other point of view, uh, we have the petition that was filed by Altitude Express, which I don't even think is in business anymore, is it? I'm or, not I sure. I heard somewhere that they may not even be in business. But our Al- listeners will surely yeah, remember us discussing this that's case. That's the skydiving company. Happened out in on, our backyard. Down on Long Island. Mm-hmm. And uh, Donald Zarda, a gay man who was one of their instructors, and uh, they discharged him under circumstances that he alleged gave rise to uh, a sexual orientation discrimination claim. He filed in federal court uh, under Title VII, and he also uh, filed a claim under the New York State Human Rights Law as a supplementary claim. And that's the one that actually went to trial and which he lost Mm. uh, because of a charge by the judge, which was uh, questionable accuracy. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, uh, the trial judge dismissed the Title VII claim following Second Circuit precedent at that time that uh, Title VII did not cover sexual orientation claims. Uh, Zarda appealed. Then he died in a skydiving accident, and his estate carried the case forward, basically his sister. Uh, And uh, they got to a a Second Circuit panel that said, uh, we are bound by circuit precedent. But there was a concurring opinion by the chief judge, Robert Katzman, who said, yeah, we're bound by circuit precedent, but this is an issue that should go on bank. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. issuing an invitation to the plaintiff here, petition us for on-bank review, right. and it'll probably be granted because the chief judge will be lobbying for it with his colleagues. Great. Uh, so it was granted. They had an on-bank hearing. They reversed their circuit precedent. Judge Katzman, of course, wrote the opinion, and very strong opinion about, he said, that discrimination because of sexual orientation is, at least in part, always about sex, mm-hmm. and thus actionable under Title VII, which has a mixed motive theory. Uh And the interesting thing uh, is, will the federal government, will the Solicitor General want to get in on this? Uh, Because uh, the position of the Justice Department is that Title VII does not cover sexual orientation, 
which is a reversal of the decision of the Justice Department under Obama. And the EEOC continues to believe it is, but I I think as soon as the last confirmation is taken care of of new commissioners, they may change their position. We'll see what happens. But, uh, you know, it it will be interesting to see if the EEOC uh, or uh, the Solicitor General participate in this one. Uh, So this is also on the agenda for the long conference on September 24. I think there's a much better chance of this one being granted. Zarda, you mean? Yeah. yeah what, about, what about both of them together? Uh, they could. Uh, but then we have, and this is the case where we're not likely to find out right away because the file won't be complete until September 24th, for reasons I will explain. It's a very interesting sort of inside baseball stuff going on. In the, Ob- in the Trump administration on, on how this is going to go forward. But uh, because this is <laughs> Interesting a case. inside baseball in the Trump administration yes. is a very tame way <laughs> yes. of putting anything that happens inside the Trump yeah, administration. Yeah, but this isn't because of Trump himself. This is because of differences between the EEOC and the Justice Department Great. on how to interpret Great. Tell us all about it. So at any rate, this is the case of the transgender funeral director. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Harris Funeral Homes. Yeah, Harris well. Funeral Homes. So the... Uh, R.G. and G.R. Harris Funeral Homes. Uh, uh, So in this case, though, the district judge said, because the EEOC decided instead of sending a right-to-sue letter, uh, they said, we're going to take this up. Mm. You know, this was back during the Obama administration. Uh, We're going to take this up because we have issued an opinion. We've issued more than one opinion now applying Title VII to transgender discrimination cases. And we would like to see our position established in the courts of appeals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they, they brought the original case in the district court. And because the government was the plaintiff, the district judge said, look, I think there is an actionable Title VII claim here. But you know what? Under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, I think the owner of this funeral home's religious free exercise is being substantially burdened by being required to have this transgender funeral director. Uh, and I think that uh, the government can't overcome that, and so I'm going to dismiss the case on that ground, a grand summary judgment on that ground. Uh, interestingly, if the individual had been the plaintiff, RIFRA would not, under Sixth Circuit precedent, have been relevant, only if the government right. is the plaintiff, sure. which is odd, and, and not every circuit agrees with that uh, reading of it. Uh, some circuits say, well, anyone who's enforcing a federal law, that's the government burdening your religion because they're using a federal law in federal court to do it. But this, in the Sixth Circuit, they say it's only if the government brings the case. Mm. I wonder if the EEOC didn't see that coming. Yeah, it's, it's sort of odd. And it's even possible when this goes up, if it goes up, that that becomes the good. issue in the case, oh, good. the RIFRA issue. Who knows? It could go off on that. Uh, and, and, you know, I'll discuss a little uh, why that may be a particular issue here. But at any rate, it comes to the Sixth Circuit, and the Sixth Circuit affirms the district judge's ruling that this is a viable Title VII case viewed on its own, but they go a step further because the trial judge had said earlier in pretrial uh, motion practice, uh, I cannot entertain a sexual orientation or a gender identity discrimination claim under Title VII. I can entertain a sex discrimination claim based on gender stereotyping. Mm. And that's the basis on which the trial judge felt that this was a Title VII claim. The Sixth Circuit said, no, no, gender identity claims are necessarily sex discrimination claims. They bought into the EEOC's approach, and they said, after all, 
the issue here was someone who was transitioning from male to female. How is that not about sex? So they took that extra step there. But then on the RIFRA thing, they said, we don't see that it's some substantial burden on his free exercise of religion, the owner. We disagree with the trial court on that point. So we don't see the RIFRA problem. And we are going to rule in favor of the funeral director, of the EEOC, who's representing the funeral director. Uh, and so the funeral home has filed its cert petition. The funeral home is being represented by ADF, Alliance Defending no Freedom. there. Uh, and they asked for an extension of time to file their cert petition. So they were granted an extension into July. Okay. And then, of course, the uh, respondent is the EEOC. And normally, when a federal government agency uh, is a respondent in a Supreme Court case, the Solicitor General represents them, okay. uh, unless they give permission to the agency to represent itself, because the EEOC has an appellate branch. They're obviously litigating in the courts of appeals all the time, so they have appellate lawyers who could appear. And sometimes the agency is given permission to represent itself in the Supreme Court. Sometimes the Solicitor General insists on it. All right, so we have the EEOC. Wow who's taking the position here that uh, gender identity claim is covered under Title VII. And we have the Solicitor General, who's a member of the Justice Department, and we have Jeff Sessions. He put out a memo, a guidance to the Justice Department that uh, totally disagreeing with this approach. He says that Title VII means what Congress thought it meant in 1964, and they weren't thinking about gender identity. They weren't thinking about sexual orientation. It's totally inappropriate. So the Solicitor General would be bound to argue that the Sixth Circuit decision is wrong. And it's a good thing that the individual has intervened because you know, I think the ACLU is representing the funeral okay. director. So, you know, there'll be someone there to argue, you know, the uh, respondent's case if it is the Solicitor General that appears for the government. But the EEOC has asked for permission to represent itself to defend its victory in the Sixth Circuit. But the membership of the commission is changing because every year the term of a commissioner expires and the president gets to nominate a new one and there are five members and no more than three may be at the same party. So by the second year of a new administration uh, where there's a change of party from the previous administration, there's going to be a change in the political balance on the commission. So so we've got this drama going on. So uh, as the deadline was looming for a response to be filed to the petition, the Solicitor General asked the Supreme Court for an extension of time because they still hadn't sorted out who was going to represent the government wow. in this case. Uh, so they were given an extension to September 24th, which is the day the long conference begins. So the papers won't be filed till that day, which means they're not going to be considered that week because the court has hundreds of cert petitions that have piled up over gotcha. the recent months. So sometime later, uh, and there was even the possibility, since the papers are being circulated to their chambers, and they'll be told, oh, this is another Title VII case asking about, you know, sexual orientation or gender identity. It's sort of like the other two petitions, but it's different. But the underlying doctrinal issue is similar. You know, to what extent can Title VII be interpreted to apply to things that it didn't, in the eyes of Congress in 64, apply to? We already had a tentative answer to that from Justice Scalia in the same-sex harassment case on Colley versus Sundowner, where Scalia said, we are not bound by the intentions of our legislators, but by the language of the statutes they adopted. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, certainly it's possible that Congress back in 64 wasn't thinking about same-sex harassment, wasn't thinking about a guy being harassed by other guys on an oil rig. But, you know, 
we've grown and we've we've got jurisprudence and we've got new ideas and new understandings. This is Scalia. And we can go based on what we believe the words mean in the context of this case. And there's no basis in the statute for the Fifth Circuit to say that you can't have a same-sex harassment case. The issue is, was the plaintiff being harassed because of his sex? You know, this is an issue for the Supreme Court now. Do we take the combination of Price, Waterhouse, and Oncali that step further, the way the EEOC did, in its opinions, and say that Title VII should be construed wherever sex is sort of an issue in the case, mm-hmm. in some sense. And certainly the gender stereotyping theory supports covering gender identity. So this is a big issue looming before the, the court. And the fact that Kennedy is off the court suggests to me that it's one we're unlikely to win unless, unless Justice Gorsuch, who is a Scalia acolyte, you know, this is really going I out of the limb. I thought you might go there, but He's I, a Scalia acolyte. Maybe he looks at no on-call, but I think it's unlikely. Do you even Gorsuch. think Scalia would follow on-call? No, no. I, right. I think he so. would see that as a one-off, you know, an yep. unusual case where a literalistic interpretation of the statute uh, mandated right. overturning the history. So well, that's I think, depressing. So, you know, if these cases go up, yeah. I think we're likely to lose five to four. Uh, but you never can tell what the Supreme Court this You could be rough. surprised. Maybe Alito will surprise all of us. Oh, God. I have a pit in my stomach. Let's yeah. go on to the judicial misconduct <laughs> okay. case. All right. So this is this is just a quickie. And this just is... to be fair, I worked on this case. Oh, that's right. The uh, Lambda, Lambda Fair Courts Legal Project. Right, yeah. yeah. So. so this is and, – and when I was writing it up, I started calling him Judge Vance. <laughs> <laughs> I just noticed that when I was preparing for today. So I, I don't know if you guys caught that on proofreading this issue. Okay. We'll, but, uh, we'll go back to the drawing board. Okay. Because you're, you're not nearly done on this 100-page <laughs> issue, right? Go ahead. So, so Vance Day uh, re- reacted to the Obergefell decision by publicizing the fact that he wasn't going to do same-sex weddings in his chambers. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't going to do have anything to do with them. Uh, but he had a lot of other things, a lot of other problems on his plate. There, there were a lot of... Uh, reasons for the Oregon Commission on Judicial Fitness uh, to write a report that the Oregon Supreme Court adopted saying, look, this guy has got to be suspended. Yeah. You know? the, the length of misconduct in that report was as long as the India Supreme Court decision. Yeah. <laughs> Almost, yeah. Uh, 495 pages. <laughs> yes. Well, but, you know, in the cert petition, uh, which was, uh, was filed uh, on July 23rd, their focus is on his religious freedom, his First Amendment right to refuse to do same-sex marriage. They're making that the whole focus. They're not talking about the other stuff in the cert petition. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's not surprising uh, when you look at who his attorney is on the cert petition. It's James Bopp Jr. That's a familiar name, isn't it? Good old James Bopp. Yeah, you, from Terre Haute, Indiana, <laughs> who's, who specializes in doing anti-gay litigation. Anti-gay also is behind a lot of the litigation around First Amendment right to judges to say whatever it is that they want to turn right. them into politicians. He's also behind a lot of anti-abortion litigation. So, yeah. Yeah, so... So that's pending, and, and all the uh, papers, the last brief was filed on September 7th, so that's been put on the docket for the September 24th long conference. But the long conference doesn't necessarily even get through yeah. the whole accumulation. 
Well, interesting in so in this here, in this context, every single commission or state supreme court that has reviewed whether it's unethical and violates canons of judicial conduct to go out and say affirmatively, I will not do weddings for same-sex couples. They've all agreed that it violates the judicial canons. There's no outlier here. Um, So if the Supreme Court were to take this in, in some way rule um, that, you know, Vance Day can go out and affirmatively say this based on his First Amendment rights, it would be a dramatic departure and a really chilling um, yeah. turn of events for the judiciary, I think. And and I think what we have to worry about, and I'll, I'll talk about it again, we're going to talk about uh, the the uh, uh, developments following Masterpiece Case Shop, that uh, this is a Supreme Court that has devised a First Amendment on steroids. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, two aspects of the First Amendment in particular, the freedom of speech and uh, the uh, free exercise of religion. It's like they are busy subordinating the Establishment Clause to the point where it's almost insignificant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, the Trump administration is really pushing them in that direction. So the addition of Kavanaugh to the court after Gorsuch, uh, both of them, uh, who are big free exercise nuts, uh, you know, and uh, of course there are other cases pending uh, in lower courts, and one where there was a cert petition pending from the uh, Washington State Supreme Court in Arlene's Flowers, uh, a florist who refused to do a same-sex wedding. Uh, and the Washington Supreme Court had affirmed the ruling uh, of the uh, trial court in that case that uh, under this state's public accommodations law, the uh, florist was not privileged to refuse that business. Uh, and so a cert petition was on file. And the court vacated the Washington Supreme Court decision in light of Masterpiece and sent it back for reconsideration. Uh, <clears throat> and part of that, I think, it was responding to an argument. I think that the, uh, the attorneys for Arlene's uh, Flowers did a supplement to their cert petition right after Masterpiece came out, and they said, oh, yeah, there's all kinds of hostility to religion in this case. And stuff. So it's it's sent back to see if the ruling in Masterpiece requires a similar result in Arlene's Flowers. And uh, shortly after the Masterpiece decision, there was a good decision from the Arizona Court of Appeals picking up on the dicta in Justice Kennedy's opinion, which says, of course, you know, there's important case law that there is no free exercise exemption from complying with anti-discrimination laws. And he cited the case of the restaurant chain in the South uh, in the 60s that didn't want to serve uh, African-American, the yeah. Piggy Park case, although he misspelled the name of the case of Piggy Park in his in the uh, slip opinion. They've corrected it in the final <laughs> opinion. Uh, but uh, That you know, clerk is fired. <laughs> yeah. Well, that proofreader is fired. But, but at any rate... Uh, you know, this is this is bubbling around. There are a yeah. lot of these cases pending. We've got cases involving wedding cakes. We've got mm-hmm. cases involving wedding invitations. We've got cases involving wedding videos. Uh, some of these cases are affirmative litigation uh, that was drummed up by anti-gay litigation groups to get businesses to say, we would like to expand into this area of business. This is a videography case that's now pending before, I believe, the Eighth Circuit. We would like to expand into the wedding video business, but we're afraid we'll have to do same-sex weddings, and it would shock our conscience, and blah, blah, blah. And so we should have a declaration that we have a First Amendment right not wow. to do wedding videos. Well, they certainly picked the right circuit. Yeah. So so there are a lot of these cases pending, and there's also a case uh, in Philadelphia that we're reporting on in this issue of Law Notes 
where uh, word got to uh, the city officials that a Catholic adoption agency would not uh, deal with same-sex couples. And they said that violates uh, our city human rights ordinance. You know, Pennsylvania doesn't have any gay rights law, mm -hmm. but so many municipalities have gay rights laws now in Pennsylvania that, you know, you're, you're driving from one place to another and you're briefly in an unincorporated area that doesn't have any mm -hmm. protection and then you're in yeah. the, the limits of some small town. Well, I think Philadelphia has also faced, I remember, a Lambda case, um, Cradle of Liberty, which was right, about with the, the Boy Scouts. scouts. And, and, a, and a sweetheart lease for a building right. that the city and they built. made a similar claim. Right. So. so at any rate, in this case, uh, the uh, the archdiocese went to federal court. They're, they're seeking to enjoin the city because the city decided not to refer kids to them anymore. And they said, Good. you know, this was under a city contract, yeah. and if we don't get the revenue from the city contract with the referrals, we've got to go out of business, yeah. uh, which I think is an establishment clause issue on its own, that the cities are paying Catholic agencies that discriminate. But at any event, uh, the court refused their request for uh, a preliminary injunction to require the city to keep referring kids to them, and they petitioned the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court refused to get involved. Okay. Uh, but that that dispute, however it turns out, is likely to bubble up to the Supreme Court as well. So we have this whole bunch of cases that might bring Supreme Court uh, various free exercise claims. Wow. Uh, then we have let's, this. Let's hold off on the, because we're going to talk about Title IX and yeah. the bathroom issues. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Okay. But we have a case in Texas that may end mm -hmm. up, up up there again. Uh, just days after the Supreme Court decided Pavan versus Smith, where they held that under Obergefell, the state of Arkansas had to put the names of both parents on birth certificates for same-sex couples. Mm -hmm. uh, because in Obergefell itself, I mean, the Arkansas Supreme Court said Obergefell didn't address this issue. They just addressed the right to marry. It but, directly addressed but that But in Obergefell, <laughs> Justice Kennedy, in explaining why the right to marry is a fundamental right, he listed all these things. Mm -hmm. And one of the things oh. he listed was birth certificates. And another thing he listed was insurance, right? This is the issue in Texas. Uh, this was originally a pre-Obergefell case. This was a post-Windsor pre-Obergefell case uh -huh. where uh, same-sex couples well, we're going out of Texas to get married because they couldn't get married in Texas. And some of them, one member of the couple was a city employee in Houston. And after the Windsor case in 2013 knocked down DOMA and uh, said that the federal government must recognize same-sex marriages performed in other states, uh, the mayor of, uh, of Houston at that time, a, a lesbian, by the way. Denise Parker, uh, yeah. Yeah, said to her city attorney, well, doesn't that mean that we have to recognize these marriages from out of state and extend insurance coverage to the same-sex spouses of our city employees. Yes. And the acquiescent <laughs> city attorney said, of course. And so by executive action, she extended it. And a bunch of Republican, local Republican activists ran into court, and they managed to get an injunction from a trial judge in Houston who said, look, under Texas law, it is unconstitutional not merely a violation of a statute, is unconstitutional for the city of Houston to recognize a same-sex marriage because mm. they had one of those DOMA-type amendments there. Right. Uh, so uh, that got litigated and it dragged out, and it dragged out so far that it dragged out past the Obergefell mm -hmm. decision. And then shortly after Obergefell and the De Leon case, the Fifth Circuit struck down the Texas ban on same-sex marriage within, yep. within a week or two of Obergefell. So by then... 
the issue of this preliminary injunction was up before the Texas Court of Appeals, and they said, well, you know, after the DeLone, DeLone case, what can we do? we got to reverse and get rid of the injunction. Uh, the Supreme Court stayed and, out of and it, And the Supreme right? Court, they said, we're not going to review this. And the Republican leadership of the Texas state government went bananas. Yeah. And uh, they told people, call the court, send postcards, send letters. The postcards were filed as yes. amicus briefs. Yeah, the court treated them as amicus briefs. <laughs> oh my God. And, and the Texas Supreme Court, in an unusual, I don't know if it's totally unprecedented, but unusual, they issued a new decision saying, we've changed our mind. And uh, we have decided that it was wrong for the Court of Appeals to rely on the DeLeon case, because that's a federal case that's not binding on the state courts. Well, I think Obergefell is a federal case that is binding on the state courts. <laughs> and I think Obergefell mentions insurance. Yeah, the Supreme Court of, uh, of Texas, Texas and Roy Moore are yeah. very... Yeah, they're close buddies. <laughs> they're soulmates. Yeah. So, the te- so the case went back down to the trial court in Houston where it's, it's pending now. And these guys are very persistent. If they lose, they're going to try to appeal this all the way up. So uh, they may be knocking at the Supreme Court's door, but I can see a summary decision citing Pavan and Obergefell. I, I can know. too. This one's just so far out there. I do see a lot of attacks on Obergefell, certainly Title Seven, uh, yeah. you know, religious discrimination areas. Um, but this one is just so right. completely bonkers. All right. Now, another issue that's going to be knocking on the Supreme Court's door is the transgender military ban, uh, because we've now gotten to the point where uh, I think it's at least three, maybe even all four of the federal district judges who have these cases pending have rejected the argument by the government that the version of the ban that Mattis recommended to the president in February and that the president said, all right, I'm going to withdraw all my tweets and stuff, and Mattis, you do what you think is right, which I believe is what you just recommended to me. So now they're arguing to the courts, well, that's different than the tweet and the August memorandum from from last year that expanded on the tweet. So there's a different policy now. So all these preliminary injunctions should be dismissed as moot because they were uh, going against the old policy. And all of the judges said, no, this is just a version of the old policy. There's little tweaks in it, like people who are already in the military and have already transitioned and are successfully serving can stay. Mm-hmm. And that's basically the most important exception. So we're not going to be kicking people out because that's the most indefensible thing since they had good records. But there are all kinds of other little twists and turns here, like not letting people enlist and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they said, no, this is basically the same policy. And since we're refusing to dissolve the preliminary injunctions, it's time to get on with this case already. It's time to get on with discovery. And guess who's stonewalling? Guess who's stonewalling? The I'm Justice Department and the Jeff White House. Sessions. Jeff Sessions. They're saying, we will not tell you who are the generals and experts that the president consulted before he issued his tweet because it's no longer relevant because we're now basing it on the Mattis policy. When in truth they can't tell because there are none. Well, no, it turns out from the Woodward book that there are. Okay. There was a memo to the president setting out alternatives in response to his problem with the uh, the Tea Party Republicans that would have the Liberty Caucus in the House who wouldn't let his defense appropriations bill go through unless they got their amendment barring the use of defense funds for sex change operations this in the military. This is in the, in the Woodward I believe book? it's in the, or I've seen it attributed to that. Maybe it's from his interviews following up. But it seems that Trump had a memo setting out alternatives. And he was supposed to have a meeting 
with these people to discuss it, but instead he just tweeted out the last alternative, which was banning military service. Oh, my God. Okay. But, you know, it's, it's, but at any rate, uh, and that, I may not have that totally accurate because I haven't read the Woodward book yet. <laughs> I'll go back and look at and, it. And my husband has read it on, on his I little e I have no interest in reading it. But uh, it's, it's too much. It's overloaded, right? It's too much. Right? I can't. But, but at any rate, uh, these judges are saying, let's get on with discovery here. Right. And one of the things they want to discover is who is responsible for writing this memorandum that Mattis submitted to the president yeah. in support of his uh, proposed policy uh, because there were no names on it. Uh, and in his cover memo, he says he describes generically this task force that was set up, but he doesn't identify anybody. And the memo itself reeks of uh, certain publications by certain anti-gay think tanks who have been putting out stuff, law review articles and reports and things over the past few years on these issues. Mm. At some point, one of these judges is going to just grant summary judgment to the plaintiffs mm. and, and decide it's time to do that, and then we might get a cert petition. Unless at that point we've had a change of administration. Oh, my or, God. Or, you know. <laughs> Which now, could honestly happen any day now yeah. with the 25th Amendment looming. Yeah. All right. Well, we have to, we have to move on. Right. Let's go on to, we're going to take a little bit of a break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about some really interesting, the summer of Title IX developments. Right. Which is another potential Supreme Court issue, of course. <laughs> Great, and we're back. So we have a really interesting cover story this um, month in Law Notes, uh, written by Chantov McNamara, um, talking about the explosion of litigation, but importantly, victories for transgender rights in public schools with respect to access to bathrooms, locker rooms that match their gender identity, Specifically, we have a slate of four victories from June through August in Oregon, Pennsylvania, Florida, Indiana, that we're going to use to look at some of the litigation tactics um, and to also talk about some lawsuits that are being filed, not just by transgender students, but also by cisgender plaintiffs um, using religious arguments to attack trans-affirmative restroom and bathroom school yeah. policies. Well, that was a long sentence, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> there was a comma in there, I'm sure. Even some semicolons. <laughs> At any rate, well, first I want to I salute Chantel McNamara, who is a Cornell Law student okay. uh, and uh, who is a volunteer writer for Law Notes. And uh, when I found out that he was doing his law review note on this issue, mm-hmm. and I had assigned him one of these cases, and then another one comes out, and another one comes out, and I kept asking him, will you take an additional one? How about a, a big article just going all of these cases? And he agreed. Even it's though a he, fabulous article. He had a summer clerkship at a law firm. He was very busy, but uh, he churned this out for us. It was a wonderful article. Uh, so the cases, Parents for Privacy versus Dallas School District Number 2. Oregon. It's Oregon. Doe v. Boyertown Area School District from Pennsylvania. Uh, and that's a Third Circuit decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is sort of a repeat because the Third Circuit issued a decision in June and then uh, they got some petitions for on-bank review and all this kind of stuff. And they decided not to do on-bank review, but they decided to issue a new opinion in place of the old opinion. And then there was a dissent from the denial of on-bank review. Uh, so, and that happened in July. Uh, and then... Uh, 
There's Adams against School Board of St. John's County in Florida and J.A.W. versus Evansville Vandenberg School in Indiana. Uh, and the first two cases that I mentioned are cases in which groups of students and parents are affirmatively suing to challenge the decisions by their school boards to let transgender students use the facilities consistent with their gender identity. The other two, the last two cases, are transgender students litigating uh, in order to get the access. So these first two cases represent a, uh, a sort of new wrinkle in this area of litigation, uh, and the idea, the contention, that Title IX goes both ways, they're arguing. Now, the transgender students come in and they say it violates our rights under Title IX, which says that uh, educational institutions that get federal money are obligated uh, to see that no one is deprived of full access to the benefits of their educational programs because of sex. Uh, and so the transgender students are saying that not letting us use the facilities consistent with our gender identity is excluding us from equal access on the basis of sex. Mm -hmm. And the parents and uh, students who are cisgender students, who uh, some of them are raising religious arguments, but they're also raising a Title IX argument. Mm -hmm. They're saying, we are being subjected to a hostile environment on the basis of sex in violation of Title IX. You know, so they're trying to use Title IX in the opposite direction yeah. and saying that uh, because we're afraid to go to the bathroom now, we might encounter a transgender person. And So what are some of these judges doing with these arguments? They're saying they're nonsense. Good. There's, that's, they're saying, you know, to, to apply the hostile environment theory, you have to show extreme and pervasive conduct that so poisons the atmosphere that someone is deprived of their educational rights. So, mm -hmm. And, and there isn't even a well-developed uh, jurisprudence of hostile environment yet under Title IX, although yep. it's coming. Uh, and it's coming for transgender students and for gay students. It's yeah. more in the context of gay students who are subjected to bullying, and that's yeah. the more traditional. In but there's no bullying here. So, and they're also making religious arguments that it, it burdens their religion to have to share bathroom facilities with transgender students. Uh, and that there are safety concerns and stuff like that. And the judges are just saying, there's all this, you know, all this hypothetical stuff. Give me some proof. Give me some evidence that there's any problem. Mm -hmm. And as we have more and more school districts that are adopting this policy and more and more transgender students who are using the facilities with no problems, and most other students don't care. I think the important point, it's the common thread of all the cases, whether it's brought by the transgender students or it's brought by the others, is the constitutional overlay here, which uh, is that there is, as I said before, this emerging consensus among the courts that discrimination because of gender identity is a form of sex discrimination. It gets heightened scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Policies that discriminate are presumptively unconstitutional. The burden is on the government, in this case the school district, if they don't want to accommodate the transgender student, to give a strong justification based on evidence and facts, mm. not based what, on speculation and fears. What is the Department of Justice doing in this instance? Well, well you know, in, in this case, we've got a situation where it's litigation between local school districts uh, and, and uh, 
although we had the guidance that was issued by the Obama administration, it was a joint guidance that came out of the Justice Department and the Department of Education, mm -hmm. that was withdrawn by the Trump administration right. uh, a few months after they took office, right after, after yeah. DeVos got in there and was confirmed as Secretary of Education. Yep. Uh, and so she and Sessions teamed up on another joint thing, withdrawing, but not substituting a new position. They withdrew the Obama administration's position, and they didn't immediately say uh, that uh, Title IX didn't apply. Uh, they said, this is something that should be decided on the local level by school boards, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, but then, later in 2017, Sessions issued a memorandum which disclaimed the idea that sex discrimination laws federal laws would cover gender mm -hmm. identity discrimination claims. So that's their, pretty much their official position, although I don't know if DeVos has actually articulated that as the official position. Can she articulate though. anything? But what she, did, <laughs> what she did is they put a stop to dealing with complaints from transgender students I, of yes. discrimination. They stopped processing them. Some of them were in process. They just stopped. They won't take new ones. Do you want to address the other two cases that deal with affirmative litigation by transgender uh, plaintiffs. Well, you know, we... there isn't much to say because we've Good. talked about prior cases, which, you know, I they're going, I think we're at the point where federal district judges who actually see the parties, yeah. including the transgender students, they get it. Yeah. You know, they, they've come around to saying, look, this is a boy, this is a girl, let them use the boy's room, let them use the girl's room, what's the fuss? And, and that seems to be the, uh, even, even judges appointed by Republican presidents, yeah. we seem to have a consensus emerging on this. Uh, and so the last sort of the parting shot on this issue is because uh, if you look in the civil litigation notes, this issue, you'll see there's another school district that's bumbling their way into being sued on this. You know, it, it seems to me that there is a problem here that the professional associations, you know, the, the principals associations, the school superintendents associations and everything, they are falling down on the job if they're not educating their members about how the law has developed here. And there are school board attorneys who are giving stupid advice yeah. if they're being consulted. You know, if, if a, you know, a mother comes in, it's usually the mother comes in with a transgender uh, sophomore or junior and says, look, we want to use the right bathrooms and stuff. And they say, no, 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 you know, we can't do that, blah, blah. They should at least consult counsel and find out that every school district that's been sued on this issue has lost. So if we have any principals listening or any uh, education department or education attorneys yeah. out there, uh, take heed of Art's warning. Yeah. But, but you know, what they may be relying on, if they are aware of all this, is that the Trump administration well, takes a different view. And that's why the, yeah. the guidance by the Obama administration directing schools about how to handle this was so important. Right. Um, and but taking it's been it, revoked. Right. And taking it away has caused all of this confusion. Not only is it mean-spirited and threatens the rights of trans people, but it also puts school districts in this place of being subject to litigation on all sides. It's just a mess. Um, and another reason why the Trump administration is the worst. So now we're going no, to take... this is an apolitical podcast. Well, Legal is an apolitical organization, but yes. I'm certainly not. Okay. <laughs> uh, Eric is talking for himself here, folks. That's right. As am I. <laughs> so we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a really wonderful uh, decision involving uh, a lesbian senior and discrimination in senior housing. 
Great, and we're back. In a groundbreaking decision from the Seventh Circuit, the circuit ruled that a landlord may be held liable under the Fair Housing Act for failing to protect another tenant from known harassment, reinstating Lambda Legal's lawsuit on behalf of a brave lesbian senior, Martha Wetzel, against a senior living center in Illinois. The case claims that the facility failed to protect her from harassment, discrimination, and violence she endured because she is a lesbian. Art, tell us about this decision. Okay, this is, this is very important uh, because the U.S. Department of Housing, you know who runs the U.S. Department of Housing. I do. I'm guessing it's, is it It's a Carson? doctor who knows nothing about oh. housing, right? Dr. Ben Carson. I think what he knows about housing oh, yes. is he lives in I w- one. <laughs> I didn't know. I forgot he, he was lives a doctor. In one. Yeah. Well, we all yes, forget ben sometimes. And, and by all accounts, was a brilliant doctor, you know? I, and he's, he's sort of out of his field, as are most of the cabinet members yeah. in the Trump administration. And uh, I'm speaking mind. for myself, not for legal here. <laughs> you know, we have this this legend at the end of the law notes where we say that it's not the official position of legal. These are the opinions of the writers. Yeah. Uh, and for precisely this reason, because legal is a nonprofit organization. Go ahead. Okay. So uh, the uh, Housing Discrimination Act includes a ban on sex discrimination in housing. And uh, certainly it applies to a residential facility. Uh, that rents uh, rooms and the use of its common spaces mm-hmm. as a, a typical uh, senior residential facility. So Marsha Wetzel, uh, her partner of 30 years, passed away. She felt she couldn't live alone. She needed to go into a congregate uh, living situation. Uh, she moved into Glen St. Andrew Living Community in Illinois. And under her tenant agreement, it says it requires her, and of course all tenants, it's a form agreement they all sign, It says to refrain from, quote, activity that St. Andrew determines unreasonably interferes with the peaceful use and enjoyment of the community by other tenants, or that is, quote, a direct threat to the health and safety of other individuals. So all of the tenants are bound by that. And it seems Wetzel was not closeted. She went in as an open lesbian and uh, was known to staff. It became known over the first few months that she's there to uh, the other tenants. And a few of them started subjecting her to terrible harassment. It's awful. It's awful. I mean, the, uh, I, I hate to even read it's it out It's violence, loud. too. It's, it's violence and harassment. It's, uh, and, and Judge Diane Woods, uh, the chief judge of the Seventh Circuit, who wrote this opinion, in summarizing the complaint, she says, beginning a few months after Wetzel moved to St. Andrew and continuing at least until she filed this suit, a 15-month period, residents repeatedly berated her for being a, quote, fucking dyke, fucking faggot and homosexual bitch. One resident, Robert Herrer, who seems to have been the ringleader here, told Wetzel that he reveled in the memory of the Orlando massacre at the Pulse nightclub. He derided Wetzel's son when he came to visit her for being a, quote, homosexual raised faggot, and uh, he threatened to rip her tits off. And another uh, resident, Elizabeth Rivera, told Wetzel that homosexuals will burn in hell. I said, here's an elderly woman, recently widowed, moves into this place and is being subjected to this. And then incidents of physical abuse, focusing on like knocking her off her motorized scooter and hitting her from behind, spitting at her. And this this was awful. And when she complained about it, uh, part of the response was uh, that uh, an employee of the uh, facility came to her apartment and accused her of lying and slapped her. I mean, it was a, it was like in and, and, and a sort of blame the victim type thing. They said, well, 
if you don't want to get knocked off your scooter, you shouldn't go to the dining room. You shouldn't go to the laundry room. You know, you should stick in your room. Mm-hmm. And she became sort of like a, a, a prisoner in her own room because in the common areas she had no protection. She complained. She said the first time she complained there was a little respite. Maybe they talked to some people and said lay off. But it started up again. And eventually uh, Judge Wood uses the word apathetic to describe the reaction. Which is tame. Yeah, it is, it is tame. They said don't worry about the harassment. The conduct is just accidental. They denied the truth of her statements. They branded her a liar. Uh, and in what I characterize in my write-up as a transparent attempt to evict her, they didn't send her her rental notice. But uh, she was uh, alert and aware enough to know that her rent was due when she went to pay it. She said she had to really hassle them to get a receipt so that if they would claim she didn't pay it, she would have proof that she paid it. And, so, and just you also just mentioned awful. that St. Andrews, the, the home in this instance, you know, said that this is a case about bad manners. They can't really be expected to know or deal with, you know, bad manners right. or rudeness right. from, from yeah. their residents. In fact, they even demeaned their residents. They said these cranky old folks. You know. they, uh, <laughs> it's really, that was uh, another outrageous. I mean, reading this opinion, it's, it's, uh, if it wasn't so awful, I would have laughed out loud. They referred to crotchety senior residents and bickering and squabbles. Well, it was worse than that. So at any rate, she filed an action under the Fair Housing Act claiming that this was discrimination on the basis of sex. Uh, and the district judge dismissed the case. Uh, they bought the argument that, first of all, uh, that there's no controlling precedent that uh, you know sexual orientation is covered. This is in the Seventh Circuit. I know. This we is in you know the Seventh Circuit has become the bastion of gay rights, and I think you know the first case that I would point to is is well, Posner's marriage decision, yeah. which was like incredible. And and then we've got we get Hively, uh-huh. and now we've got this case. Uh-huh. The, the Seventh Circuit is very hospitable now, and uh, there are some vacancies there, and Trump is filling them up. And I don't know how long this will last. But in this case, uh, also the the uh, facility argued that the ban on sex discrimination is about not discriminating against making leases with people, but once they're in, they're on their own, and we have no obligation to them. And the Seventh Circuit said, "You got to be kidding me." Basically, I mean, you're discriminating with respect to the services provided by your facility because the common areas, which you control, the dining room, you basically, you've exiled her from the dining room. You know, that's part, that's covered under her lease. You've said she can't use various facilities. So uh, they said, obviously, that this is incorrect. Send it back to the district court because right now it's all allegations. This was uh, a motion to dismiss. Yeah. So, You've got to go back. And I. they didn't specifically say to send it to a different judge. I think that would have been prudent. But they sent it to the same judge with, I guess, a stern lecture. <laughs> and, and hope it turns out better. I do, too. Well, it's certainly being expertly litigated by Karen Lowy, who is a former colleague of mine at Lambda Legal. She's been fighting but on behalf of LGBT seniors um, for quite some time and has often made the case that you know, this is not unique. This is something that actually LGBT seniors face harassment in um, living contexts all the time. And the idea that we're finally getting some visibility for this case is is real, and that it turned out this way is just a really important development um, because it shines a light on right. some of this. And and there is a movement on to uh, uh, construct 
senior facilities that are specifically aimed at uh, LGBT seniors. Uh, but if you're in a jurisdiction that bans sexual orientation discrimination or gender identity discrimination, you can't make it exclusive. It has to be open to everybody. Mm, interesting. So, well, but, but one would assume that people who are very strongly homophobic or transphobic aren't going to want to move into a place that's <laughs> marketed. My, my grandparents would love to live in an LGBT senior yeah. living city. Because <laughs> everyone will decorate their apartment so beautifully, and right, the cuisine right. and the dining room will be exquisite. <laughs> okay, Art. Okay. I did want to um, at least re- Read this one statement here. from um, this is Martha Wetzel. After you know when this case was filed, talking about what this felt like. It's one thing to be called names and attacked by other residents, but when the staff refuse to protect me, even after they see with their own eyes what's happening to me, that's worse. I feel invisible, like I'm a ghost, but I'm a human being and I'm scared. Every time I leave my room, I have to be careful and look over my shoulder. There are places I won't go because I'm afraid of being called names or getting hit. I'm tired. This is not what I imagined my golden years to be. The love of my life was a woman. We raised a child together, and I don't want to hide that part of my life. That was the best part. And Lambda Legal actually has a campaign on their website where you can join um, a letter of statement um, to Martha that they'll send, uh, just just showing your support and cheering her on for being a champion in this area. So I'll put that link up on the on the podcast if you want to go ahead and be a part of that campaign. So now we're going to wrap up and we're going to do our law note, um, of note, our of note law note, which I'm always excited to hear from Art about and I have no idea what it's going to be. And let's take a little break and then we'll come back. All right, Art, what's our of note? Well, readers of law notes know that every issue is just packed with a section on prisoner litigation. Okay. And that the re- a recurring theme in there almost every month we've got cases on this is transgender uh, inmates usually pro se who are not being given their hormones mm-hmm. or you know who uh, many prisons still have this freeze frame policy that if you come in uh, you know and you haven't been uh, diagnosed with gender dysphoria and haven't already started on hormones and all that kind of stuff you can't start in prison you can't transgender in prison it's, it's like, well, it's like the Trump administration's thing with the military. We're not going to let people transition in the military. Right. Well, they want to let you transition in prison. I know the case you're going to talk about, and I'm excited. Go well, ahead. just to, to read the opening paragraph by Bill Rold on Go this ahead. case. He says, nearly all judicial opinions about transgender inmates treat the plaintiffs as people with a set of symptoms to be treated or not. This case stands apart in its recognition of a transgender woman in all her human complexity. Here, Chief U.S. District Judge Marky e. Walker, an Obama appointee, the Northern District of Florida, writes, quote, Ultimately, this case is about whether the law and this court by extension recognizes Ms. Keohane's humanity as a transgender woman. The answer is simple. It does, and I do. Wow. All right, so this is the prison administration. They won't, li- they won't provide hormones. They finally get around to providing hormones. They won't allow her to dress the way she wants to dress mm-hmm. in her female presentation. Uh, and the state has a freeze-frame policy, which is what delayed getting the hormones started in the first place. So the judge not only says that this plaintiff gets her hormones and should be allowed, and and uh, interesting part in the opinion, he said during the course of the case, the states, some of the state's witnesses admitted that they were unfamiliar with gender identity issues and stuff. And these are the people supposed to be making the decisions. Yeah. 
And so the judge says he's going to permanently enjoin the state from this freeze frame policy. And uh, he said, well, enlightenment seems to be coming to some of these witnesses, and maybe that will change things, but I think I need to issue an injunction anyway in, in support of the plaintiff here. So this is an unusually affirmative case. It's, uh, let's see, Keohane, K-E-O-H-A-N-E versus Jones uh, from the Northern District of Florida on August 22nd, and that'll probably be in Fed Sub 3rd. Wow. Is Actually, it, it's, in, it's in West Lawn. Is it an now. ACLU case? Oh, yes. Uh, the ACLU, New York and Miami offices, and uh, cooperating attorneys from DLA Piper LLP. That's wonderful. Miami and Atlanta offices. The ACLU's LGBT project has a really strong presence there in Florida, so that's really nice to see. It was a wonderful case, and there's a good piece from uh, James Essex. Um, writing about this particular on decision. On the ACLU website. On the ACLU yeah. website, if folks want to read that. But yeah. uh, Bill Rold... He did a great um, job on this. He did a great job on this, and it's worth you know elevating the work that he's been doing for Law Notes for some time uh, to... You Several know, just, years now. We're yeah. really... We are one of the few places that is publicizing these prisoner decisions. And, and there are and, so many of them, and, and they the don't problem, get the light of yeah, day. A lot of them are like screening decisions by magistrate judges and stuff, and sometimes they're just totally outrageous, mm-hmm. and no one is casting any light on them. And so at least by reporting on them, we're trying to cast some light. And this is a way of encouraging those of you who get law notes, either in a PDF file or in the uh, surface mail edition, uh, don't just skip over those prisoner litigation notes. You know, dip into them. There are some fascinating stories in there, and there are things that will get your blood to boil. And, yeah. you know, we want you to be a little angry about the way the justice system is being perverted when prisoners pro se go in there yeah. and uh, are imposed, like, ridiculous time limits. Like the, the judge will say, well, I'm, I'm going to dismiss this without prejudice, and you can file a new complaint in three weeks. And you're talking about a pro se prisoner who has limited time when they're allowed to be in the law library, who doesn't have access to computers and stuff. So these are handwritten documents that they're yeah. submitting. It's, it's sort of ridiculous. And I would say for people who, you know, if you're sitting out there and your blood is boiling or you feel like you want to do something, Legal frequently gets letters from prisoners, you know, just written to us, sent to our offices asking for help. Um, and we do try to partner with attorneys who can volunteer and represent some of these folks. And fortunately, Bill Rold has been willing to provide a little bit of guidance um, through law notes and also, you know, on, a, on an individual level if folks have questions. But if you want to partner with us, we would welcome the volunteer uh, support. Um, and I think that's where we'll leave it. Yes. I, I hope it's not another two months before we talk again, Art, because <laughs> this has gone on for quite some time, but I could sit here and probably talk to you for another hour. Well, we promise our listeners that next month we will talk about the India Supreme Court decision. We'll open, up with, we'll open up with that. By then, surely we'll have gone through all 490 however many pages. Well, we also will know uh, by the time we're doing the October podcast if the Supreme Court is granted cert on any of those gay cases from the long conference. And perhaps we may know, if everything goes right for the majority leader, whether we have a new justice on the Supreme Court or whether we're starting all over again, which is my sincere hope. Um, So great. So thank you so much for being a listener of LGBT Law Notes podcast. Come back and listen to us again. Thank you so much. Until next time.